Welcome to the audio-only version of this week's pop-up submission show. I hope you enjoy it. We love you to join us for the live show on YouTube every Sunday at 5pm UK time. YouTube.com slash Litopia. And we are live once more with pop-up submissions. Now, I'd better tell you what we do, just in case um, you're not familiar with the idea. So, all right, let's, let's start right from the beginning. Let's say you want to write a book. So you've got this great idea for a book, you write a few chapters and you think, I need to get a publisher. Well, one route to doing that is to send it to an agent, somebody like myself, or maybe direct to publishers. Some publishers do take submissions directly. You send it in and you wait and you wait and you wait and maybe you hear back in a few months, maybe you don't. What goes on in the meantime? Well, what happens is your submission is reviewed, but you don't know what on earth they're saying about it until now, because what was formerly a black box is now here, done in public. Yes, call me insane, we probably are, but I'm your host, Peter Cox, literary agent, and here to help me review this week's submissions are two very special guests. He's the author of the Liverpool Mystery series of books, which have been described as half Peaky Blinders, half Wet Nellies. A welcome return to Jack Fern. And one of the most iconic stars, (laughs) iconic stars of stage and screen. Well, in the last hundred years, actually, um, that would be Marilyn Monroe. Uh, Tonight we have Latopia's equivalent. It's Ali Gardner. And I'm delighted to say the writers who send us their work in do also send us reviews. Could we review your work? You should review us too, really. It's only fair, isn't it? This is from Tom. Uh, thanks again, says Tom, for having my book on. Naturally, I cringed a bit, but all the feedback was very valuable and recognisable. That's what we aim for. I'm currently working with an agent, great, to whittle down a lot of the overwriting, amongst other things, so upwards and onwards. That is very much our motto. Let's have a look and see who is winning so far this month. And it's looking very tight at the top, actually. Last week's show, which you can see on YouTube if you didn't join us live, was an absolute corker. Um, We had some very, very high-scoring submissions on there, indeed. Number one, the top dogs of London, SM Worsley, 78. 78 out of 100. That is going to be extremely hard to, to beat. Just underneath Black and Rose by Cage Dunn, just underneath that Dustria by Mudarika. I think all those are on uh, last week's show as well. So, what's going to happen this week? I don't know. It could be another extraordinarily high scoring show. We'll find out in the next few minutes. Uh, before that, this important announcement. Someone's got to say it. A lot of writing courses and seminars out there are horrifically overpriced. Litopia's writing seminars deliver practical knowledge you can use at an unbeatable price. Learning the tricks of the trade shouldn't cost a fortune. Litopia's writing seminars give you what you need to know without fleecing you. And that is our very first seminar that I'm going to be doing live. None of this pre-recorded nonsense. It's going to be an absolute live seminar uh, a couple of weeks' time. I think it's Saturday the 4th of September. If you want more information and to book at such a trivial price, it's embarrassingly low, uh, go to litopia.com slash blurb and you will be able to book there. Let's have a look at our very first submission of the day, shall we? 
And this comes from Daphne, just Daphne. It's quite sweet, actually. Daphne, just Daphne. It's a memoir mystery hybrid. Uh, and it's called The Power of Music. That's a nice title. And this is Daphne's blurb. For me, it's essential that people know how much music means to the world and just how dark and cold a place it would be without it. Hmm, I feel the same about writing. My own story is proof that music has a much more significant influence on people's lives than simply making them happy in the passing moment or putting people in the mood to dance. It shows that key experiences are internalised without our awareness. Find out how a famous British musician saved my life in Switzerland without them knowing. Intrigued? I hope you are. Let me tell you about uh, Daphne. Not much to say. Uh, Daphne is a pseudonym, says Daphne, who's not Daphne. I am a British slash Swiss woman. I'm 27 years old, I'm a nurse, and live with my partner in Switzerland. So that narrows it down to probably a few hundred thousand people. Uh, the Power of Music is my first book. That's fantastic. Well, dare I say, am I giving too much away to say that one good Swiss turn deserves another? This is your narrator, Barbara. The Power of Music by Daphne, read by Barbara. Introduction. The story you're about to read is a journey through my diary, trying to perceive why I behaved the way I did and why I had anxieties about things other people did not. Here's a list of some of those anxieties. I can't walk on ice without breaking down into tears. I'm terrified of small dogs and can't touch them. I'm scared of lifts that I'm not familiar with. I'm afraid of heights. I can't walk down steep hills without being able to hold on to a railing. I can't walk downstairs that don't have a railing. I can only swim in swimming pools where I can see what is in the water. I am petrified of boats and ships, anything that floats on water that you can sit on or in. As the love between my partner Bailey and me deepened, he noticed that, worryingly, he could not put his arms around me or hug me without my feeling immense pain. Moreover, the paroxysms of crying that I would experience in situations barely could not make sense of left him feeling perplexed and heartbroken. On multiple occasions, he told me to see a psychiatrist, someone I could talk to, a person who could help me. It took a couple of months for the idea to sink in. Simply put, the whole idea made me feel anxious. How will I explain my situation to a stranger? Where would I start? What are they going to think? It required a lot of strength for me to phone a psychiatrist to make an appointment, but I managed it in the end, and it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. That decision was the most important in my life, and it changed everything for the better. During my trauma therapy with several psychiatrists, I was required to lie on a bed and more or less relive my childhood horrors in order to find out why I am the way I am. Most of the events that I relived I remembered very clearly and each made sense as if they happened yesterday. Yet other incidents made no sense at all. I had a jigsaw puzzle in front of me. All the pieces that made sense built the edge of my jigsaw, and all the bits that made no sense resembled the regular and irregular pieces to my puzzle. I now needed to find out how to assemble this incomplete picture. Following each therapy session, I wrote down the new findings. After more than a year, I had filled an entire notebook with them. Come a couple of years, 
no new puzzle pieces appeared and I found it was time to finally solve the mystery. In total, it took me a whooping seven years to do so. Three years into my search, I discovered that I did not in fact have all the puzzle pieces. There were two more pieces to the puzzle that held the key to my making sense of it all after all this time. Imagine yourself sitting at the table looking at the jigsaw puzzle you have been working on for days, finding out that two pieces are missing from the puzzle. The frustration is enormous and you start taking your whole house apart looking for the missing pieces. You may then find out that the dog has eaten them. However, I had no clue where to begin my journey and what I needed to do to find them. When at last, after six years, I found the first and then a year later the second missing puzzle pieces, the ineffable discovery of these pieces was, if it could be described in words, unforgettable, mind-blowing, fantastic. I was so shocked by it that at first I didn't know what to do. A horrendous weight had been lifted from my shoulders, one that had been sat there for years. I now felt weightless on cloud nine. At that moment, I knew the world had to know my story. You're going to read my story the way I re-experienced it, as a jigsaw puzzle. All right. Thank you, Barbara. Terrific reading to start us off today. Um, let's just um, check what the genius room is saying. Um, I get things frequently wrong. They never do. Always right, never wrong. That's amazing, really. Um, let's just go from uh, E.G. Logan. Much of that is just good sense. That's <laughs> somewhat cynical, but avoiding all the, uh, the things that uh, the author mentioned right at the beginning. Where's the music? Says Annie. Uh, I'm finding this a little hard to play. John Weiss says Johnny. Why now? Says RK. Barbara, our narrator, said, I felt it withheld too much. That's interesting because the narrator always sees a bit differently. Eva likes the accessible language, yeah, uh, makes it familiar, she says, but I don't know how much of this one can take. Um, Vagabond says, like the list at the start, but feels if it's going over the same ground a bit too much now. And um, Ancora is engaging. I like the writing, she says, though I feel this should perhaps, um, it, it needs a good edit mm. and needs to give us different information. More of a hook would be nice. And one or two other people have said more of a hook too. So I'm hoping that you, Ali, can uh, help me make sense of this, please. Um, yeah, I entirely agree about the hook. I, I found myself wondering why I should care. I don't know who this person is. I, I don't empathise with them. I'm not engaged with them. Um, and I really felt I was being given almost like a news article or an essay. It was it was a factual statement. It was a report. Mm. It mm. wasn't a story. And a life story should still be a story. I know it, it's a factual report in some ways, but it should still be a story and it should yeah. be engaging. And I, I just simply wasn't engaged. I, did, I mean, it's fluent enough writing, writing. I felt that she had a story. She wanted to tell a story story she had the commitment to do it you know there is something behind all this that's pushing it along mm. um but i really just I, I just didn't connect to it at all okay all right fair enough have you pressed your vote button yet i'm very close to doing it good all right we'll do it do it now while let's just see if it's going to come through while, while we're talking because i'm and we're slightly nervous about the very first vote of the day just to make sure the technology works all I'm right voted. excellent okay we'll give it 10 seconds or so meanwhile let's see what you made of it jack and press your button, please, Jack, too. Okay. Well, Good uh, lad. Okay, Good. I'll talk and vote at the same time to keep you Amazing. Happy, okay? Amazing. <laughs> uh, okay, so I, I think this needs an editor. I think it needs putting into shape. I think there may be a story there, but it needs to be dug out. What currently exists 
is i mean uh, and just the start of it the introduction you know i mean she has a, what the end of the blurb the last sentence of the blurb is something like how a famous musician saved my life in switzerland that's the yeah. story yeah, it you know, is. Why don't you start with that? Yeah, you yeah. know, you don't have to finish that yeah. story, but start with it and then yeah. work backwards from there. You know, yeah. all the rest of it was, you know, I'm sorry to say it was, it was, you know, the craft was okay. You can write, but you need to focus on how to build a story. And right. I don't think you can do that yourself, to be honest. I think you need some external help. I need you, f I think you need to find an editor. That would mm. be my advice. I couldn't disagree with that. Jack, let's just um, make sure your vote is is showing. Okay. Have you pressed the, the red vote button? You've got to do that to send I'm the data in. filling them in now. Okay. Uh, one last thing, though. Uh, yeah. I put on the bank, I put three. Because if you can actually do this, I think yeah. this would be very commercial. Yeah, you know, the, yeah the people I agree. People love music. People love... If you can engage the emotions, because that's what music's about. And so yeah. far, this yeah. hasn't. And, you know, yeah. that's where it needs to go. I'm just going to talk you through the voting again, because you, I don't think you've hit anything for the title. Did you hate the title? No, I put three. I'm going to... Shall I do okay. it again? It says, uh, got it, thanks. Okay, well, it's not... For some reason, it's not showing the title, so I'm not very happy with that. I wonder if that's going to... If that's a technical problem, our end, we'll find out in due course. Okay. I, I think the, the title is okay. You know, yeah, I quite uh, like the title as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're looking at 50 so far, but maybe we'll, we'll just tweak Jack's vote just slightly in the next few moments. Um, I agree with everything that's been said, actually, uh, Daphne. Uh, this kind of uh, non-fiction book is, uh, is bread and butter, basically, to the publishing business. Um, it's terribly important. It's very valuable. It's potentially very publishable. But, you know, you've got to do two things, really. You've got to read a lot in this area to see how people in the past have told their own stories. And here's a hint. It's actually about me. You may think it's about you, but it's not. It's about me. It's about me, the reader. Um, and secondly, just, you know, just see what people have done before see how they've approached the same sort of subject matter and sometimes books in this area have been really really huge so uh, you've got a decent 50 we're gonna have a look at jack's vote in a moment see if we can increase that a bit but it's not a bad start when you join our weekly huddle certain things happen no not that bring your writing your book titles your blurbs anything really for expert and sympathetic input in confidence. Other websites charge a fortune for this kind of thing. In Latopia, the oldest community for writers on the net is included in your modest subscription. Latopia, we're here for you. Yeah. And here's number two of the day. It's from Don, science fiction. Looking forward to this. It's called Pale Grey Dot. Let me read you Don's blurb. The disgraced ex-spy, Churney Fender, has been stuck in a dead-end job pumping gas for decades, eking out a meagre living in the far future. His friends and family abandon him to the far corners of the solar system, and he's nothing. But then, seemingly out of the blue, he receives the call. Come back to work. We need you again. Your old lifestyle, full of luxury and glory, awaits you, and all you must do his hunt down your former colleagues. Sounds like Uber or something, doesn't it? Really? Um, this is about Don. I am the lead fiction editor for T.Spec, Inc. 
impressive. In addition, I've published numerous short stories, including an unfit magazine and Polar Borealis. I am also a 2019 Writer of the Future Honourable Mention. With a distinguished record like that, you need a distinguished reader, and that will be Johnny. Pale Grey Dot by Don Mayasak. Read by Johnny. Chapter One. Jenna woke to the sound of arguing, audible even over the rain. Up above, water poured out of the gutters that ran down the side of the housing complexes. Her internal chronometer showed 5.08am, and the lights in the nearby buildings were still dimmed. Jenna's eyes settled on the man and woman. They were now screaming at each other. She stole his ration chip, he said. He was a stain who couldn't tell a chip from his ass, she said. The man wore a grey tattered long coat that blended in with the walls of the surrounding buildings. His breather was a mixture of scratched glass and cracked rubber. The woman had no breather at all, and her strained screeching was interrupted by a fit of hacking coughs. Her sagging skin and sunken eyes spoke of bad anti-aging procedures long since abandoned. Her mouth had more gaps than teeth. There were at least 15 others huddled together in the laneway. Most were sprawled across the ground, sleeping under makeshift blankets or propped up against one of the old shipping crates used for food distribution. Neither the screaming nor the rain was enough to wake them. Jenna had already marked and identified each one the night before, but found no threats. Even those with some fight in them knew better than to get in her way. Jenna's joints ached as she climbed to her feet, turning away from the fight. Her fellow displaced were unstable after so many years of scavenging for survival but at least they were predictable. Her drenched black hair obscured her vision as she stumbled out of the alley to the street level. She found the road still relatively clear of traffic. The curbs were lined with bulbous white cars from single-seaters to small trucks, all waiting for commuters to book. The signs over each of the cabs existed in the physical world as well as virtual for those with cybernetic eyes. 13 minutes from downtown to Bronxport, $20. The sound of the argument faded as Jenna walked. The homeless fight for stupid reasons, she thought. Every alley in the street was filled with this sort of nonsense. She took stock of her surroundings. Despite the hour and the downpour, a few brave umbrella-wielding pedestrians passed her by. They made a chase to weather smog this morning, giving citizens a chance to go without their breather masks for at least a little while. One man in a business suit and jacket took several steps to avoid being too close to her, wrinkling his nose in the process. She was something to be avoided by the well-to-do. Apparently time to see about stealing a new set of clothes. Being ignored was one thing, but when the dredgers started actively avoiding her, it meant they were noticing her. Jenna would rather be invisible. Her stomach growled, but food was also something to worry about later. For now, she had to focus on her mission. Up above, the glowing red light of the security checkpoint cut through the brown fog. The metal arch stretched from one side of the street up and over to the other. It flashed its acknowledgement as each citizen passed underneath. Drones, no doubt managed by some cyborg in a darkened control room a continent away, watched her every move. Some hovered, fans beating against the wind, while others used their spidery legs to cling to the side of the arch. Old training helped keep Jenna's breath and heart rate steady, while a proxy identification registered a false name as she strode underneath. The arch flashed, placated. Now through, Gemma backed into the alley behind her and rolled up her left sleeve, revealing ports and circuitry. She remembered how happy she had been when she first received them. Such idiocy, she thought. 
Digging into a soaked pocket, she drew out a small gleaming data decryptor. Twisting it around, she braced herself before inserting it into one of her ports. The instant she connected to SecLink, mixed in with the flood of information, came the pull. For a moment, she wanted nothing more than to call ESS, the Earth Security Service, and surrender. You blame her, but you know it's your fault. Make her happy. Make yourself happy. ESS is your friend. They will help you. You know she only wants what's best for you. Piss off, she hissed out loud, though no one else heard her. Searing jolts of pain shot through her head the longer she resisted. Happens to do that sometimes. Jack, first reactions, please. Okay, first reactions. I like the writing. You know, I think... Uh, the author describes the situation and the, her feelings well. And so we get an idea of the kind of mood, the atmosphere, and I think it's well written. The little mm. lines in there which, you know, give a lot of information. You know, like she had more gaps than teeth. You know, it tells you an awful lot about a character just through one line. You know, and I, I think that's a sign of good writing. I think for me, uh, it didn't, so I really liked that, but it didn't really progress. It was kind mm. of stuck in this thing of letting us know too much detail without she mentions her mission. But by the end of it, I still don't know what that mission is, and it would be nice to have an idea. You mm. know, not, again, you know, you don't have to give the whole game away, but at least tell us where we're going with it. But I, I thought it was good. I, I don't know, you know, the sci-fi, there were elements in there, you know, and that was nice. You know, the stuff about, I don't even know, I'm not a technical person, but I recognized it as futuristic, if you know what I mean. But there was no real bang for that. You know, without those little details, you could have been reading about 1930s and alleyway in Chicago. Yeah, yeah, there was that feeling to it. I picked that up too. That's very interesting, actually. It's quite it's sort of retro, dystopia, futuristic. Yeah, are you, yeah. I mean, just, are you a sci-fi reader? Not a lot, no, which is why I'm kind of, you know, uh, cautious about criticising it. I like mm -hmm. the writing, but it, I don't think it had enough bang for me. And just okay. on the title, I, yeah. I think the title's really nice and literary, but I don't think it'll pull readers in, especially sci-fi readers. Hmm. But again, I'm not a sci-fi reader, so what do I know? But that's just my reaction. Well, yeah, uh, and Katie on uh, YouTube has just made that comment as well, actually. But it's really hard, actually, I think. Um, I mean, it's probably not just hard. It's actually impossible, logically speaking, for any writer ever to write the first page because you've got, you've got to squeeze so much in there. And uh, Don's doing a hell of a lot of world building there, maybe too much world building, maybe not enough focus on character and you know, just grabbing the reader by the uh, short and curlies. I don't know. It's, it's really hard. What did you make of this, Allie? Uh, I was completely confused at the beginning. I didn't know where I was particularly. I didn't know what era I was in, and it, it took a while before I began to sort of register. A lot of sci-fi does do that. It kind of drop you in at the deep end. So, you sure. know, I mean, so maybe you wanted to find out. Maybe that was a way of, of you know, dropping you in the deep end, and you've got to say, well, where am I and what's going on? Did that intrigue you or just sort of turn you off? 
Um, and more of the turning off. Um, I just think perhaps the thing to do is actually dis distill out the information the reader needs to know. I mean, an argument between a man and a woman, you know, yes, it's a nice piece of colour. Actually, it's nothing to do. I mean, this is a really precious part of the story, you know, it this is. first 700 words. Yeah. And, you know, wasted with two people arguing. We've yeah. wasted with, with all the business about the homeless and all the rest of it. Again, that yeah. could have been described in about a third of what was going on. Um, something like the breathers were mentioned about three or four times. Now, you know, maybe this is a sci-fi thing. I have no idea. Um, but again, you know, did we need to know now that they were mm. not wearing their breathers? And mm. I've just felt that many times, the cabs, I think they, they were described, they were small white ones and bubbly other ones. You know, again, can't we just have cabs? You know, does it really matter whether they're small and bubbly or not? So, that, you know, a splash of detail, a splash of colour, something you can hold on to, like the teeth thing, you know, fair enough. But, but such a lot of the detail is not necessary. And, yeah. and there was just wads of telling. And I, uh -oh. I really didn't, again, feel, you know, it took me a second to clock that she definitely was the main character when we went off on this argument. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that came in from the left. Um, and again, I just didn't engage with the main character. You know, she's, you know, going through all this trouble and things clearly yeah. hurt her and she's clearly resisting and, and I'm wondering why I should care. So yeah. I, I think to debulk it, to start, I mean, the entire of the action in this is that an argument which is completely spurious occurred. Um, and she went to some form of workplace or clocking in station. You know, that was it. And that was I it. just think, yeah. I think we need, you know, just a little more clarity on the world by removing the, the red herrings. Yeah. Uh, and a little bit more of something happening that actually matters to us. Yeah, it was too easy for me just to, to read through, just like any other submission, really, and not get hooked. And that's, that's the key. Yeah. You know, when, I mean, Don, you, you've probably seen a few submissions in your time as a uh, fiction editor, actually. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's not unusual for people to be looking at 25 subs in a, in a session of 50 sometimes. It's a bit insane, but it has been done. And, um, you know, it's, it's just, you've just got to reach out from that manuscript, actually, just grab the reader by the, well, whatever, wherever you want to grab them, really. But, they, but you've got to grab them. Um, it's just got to be that significant... There's got to be some 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 white water, some some space between you and the submission before and the submission after. It's just that one thing that makes it significant, different, and special. Um, probably is there, but it's not there on the, in the first seven hundred words. Let's have a look and see what the genius room is saying. That's not a good sign. <laughs> RK Caps has gone to bed. <laughs> I don't think we've ever had anyone go to bed before. Uh, oh, dear. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Uh, I think we had a few people go to sleep, but not bed. Oh, God. Johnny, Johnny's our narrator on that. He liked the, the craft. Um, and he got a sense of character, but I do agree in terms of the protagonist not matching the blurb. That was something that people were saying, that uh, the blurb wasn't quite... Meeting up to their expectations, and that's quite interesting sometimes when you do create serious expectations, as you should do with a title and a very strong blurb, that's what we're aiming to do, but then, you know, you almost as soon just dash them and let people down, they feel disappointed. I've had that, I didn't, I didn't feel that myself here, but I have had it happen a number of times on pop-up submissions before when my expectation, when I think, I get really keen on something, I think this is going to be great. And maybe it is great, but, you know, 30,000 words into the piece, not the first 700 words. So, let's just, um, yeah, we did get um, Jack's uh, number going okay for the first submission. So, 59, let's just look at the overall scorecard. Uh, 54 or 59, we seem to be climbing that la ladder. Each submission seems to be going up and up and up. And remember, it's quite a quite a lofty target. 
We've got a beat today. It's 78, SM Worsley. That is no mean feat. It might be done. Might be even the next submission. And that is where you send your submission to. Uh, you can either send it to litopia.com slash subs or, if you're feeling adventurous, subs.litopia.com. It goes to the same place. It's quite extraordinary. Submission number three. It says literary fiction. Ooh. Oh, I've got a QR code there too, which is fantastic. I love it. You know, when you do send us a submission, please send us a link um, because we can promote you. We love doing that, actually. So there's a QR code there, which is fun. And, you know, you scan that on your phone and see where Jeff wants you to go. Literary fiction, and it's called... we got a lot of moon stuff today. This is called When the Moon Was White. And this is Jeff's blurb. It's 1967 in Good Muse, a fictional American town known for its bright moon. Bano Caldrum. Another, I think it's got some great protagonists' names today as well. Bano Caldrum is working at a NASA outpost, the Good Muse Moon Center, when he discovers his boss's secret plan to paint the moon. Hmm. The plan involves using a NASA rocket, and Bano knows he should tell someone, but he signed NASA's oath of secrecy and prides himself on keeping his word. He feels he can't even tell NASA as he fears they might be in on the plan. I like the sound of this. It might be humour, actually. I could, I could see this working as sort of um, satire. But we'll see if it is. Because uh, literary, literary fiction covers a whole variety of sins here. Let me tell you about um, Jeff. I've been working on this novel for eight years. Well... <laughs> Oh, I have some thoughts on that. I'll tell you later. Uh, and it's been structurally edited twice by ex-colleagues of mine at the Society of Editors and Proofreaders, of which I was an advanced member. I previously self-published one novel. The Sunday Times reviewer wrote that, quote, it operates on a personal and therefore universal level. OK. Um, wonder if that's right. The per personal is therefore universal. Isn't that solipsism? Um, a strangely compelling narrative. I've also self-published two Kindle-only books of creative non-fiction and have had stories, articles and poems published in literary magazines, journals and newspapers in California, South Africa and London. In 2019, I was selected for inclusion in City Lit's Fiction Masterclass in London. Good old City Lit. Uh, where I've lived since 1990 with my South African wife, I am American. Brilliant. All right. Let's get straight on with a, an amazing reading from Bev. When the Moon Was White by Jeff Probst, read by Bev. 1. Early Spring, 1965. Good News, South Dakota. Francine had always doubted it could happen that a person visiting the place for the first time could be so taken by it they would decide to return. But on her first Good Muse evening, gazing up at the moon as she stood alone on the salmon pink pavement, bathed in the front garden's white-flowered fragrance, she said to herself, yes, the moon is the moon. Good Muse is, is no brighter than any other, but is there something in the way it hangs above the orange woods, the way it reflects off the Mars-covered cliffs? And I thought my heart belonged to Arizona. The TV programme had been about the Good News Moon, celebrated in the town for its striking brightness. But the town, too, had beguiled Francine as she walked along the rows of houses. At first she'd been disorientated by all the bendy streets, 
but after a few days she got used to seeing windows and chimney stacks directly overhead. She'd also found the Good Muse accent disconcerting. It seemed too harsh for such a gentle feeling place. But when she listened more carefully, she heard no bitterness. The discordant twang began to dissolve into something like a dark chocolate that was coating a softness inside. And she liked the way that people said good news, with the stress falling lightly on good. She often ended up on Good Muse Way, stopping outside the scaffolded church, which reminded her of the pictures she had seen of Gaudi's Basilica in Barcelona. It struck her as Good Muse's own bandaged creature, but beneath its time-worn boards and blackened bricks, she could sense its balanced beauty. On the last morning of her visit, Francine did her orangewood drive amble again. Even though at times she rued the fact that her knowledge of the outdoors got in the way of merely enjoying it, the simple act of walking almost always made her feel good. And as she carried up the gently rising lane, appreciating nature's graduations of shade, she thought, is there anything more wonderful than walking by yourself, looking at, thinking what you want? She passed a manure smelling field of sheep, jumping and cropping bright green pasture, enclosed in one of the low stone walls that crisscrossed the hills. She stopped to watch a lamb scratching at its face with its hind leg, seemingly in time to a bird tweeting, then looked back towards Good Muse. Would a Martian think it was home, as it ruminated on the terracotta colour of the cliffs? They looked rose madder, a washed-out red she liked experimenting with. As she walked on, she could smell what she thought were Shasta daisies, then saw it was cows. Their black and white patches made her think of the moon, its bright rays and peaks and the darker face of the man. Then she smelled the pininess, and soon the grove towered up, giant orange poles fronded with green. She went through the stile and walked in, weaving through trees on barely visible paths that were now floored in leaves as slippery as magnolia petals. It's the sort of place, she felt, that you wouldn't see litter, even a banana peel. Off to her right, the gamboge tree jumped out at her. She was surprised at how assuredly she had found it again, but it was much shorter and thinner than most of the orange woods, and obvious with its lemon-like fruit. She circled it to confirm what she'd known the first time. It was clearly ripe enough to make extracting its colourful sap worthwhile. She took out the hook she'd brought and screwed it as far as it would go into the tree trunk, then got out her bamboo cup from Happy Goblet Massage, hanging it so it was flush with the tree. With her penknife, she made small spiral incisions in the bark just above the cup. She watched one milky yellow drop fall into it. It was tangible proof of what biologists studying the area had determined. Orangewoods are also found elsewhere in the world, but only here did they coexist with gamboges. A pine needle floated down like a small bird treading air. She watched for the next drop. Alright, let's see what the genii are saying. E.G. Oh, this is a big, big, um, big comment. Yeah, E.G. Logan says this is very S-L-O-W. Um, Vagabond says, trouble is it's not really linking to that blurb at all, and that was actually our narrator. So that's interesting. And it says, not getting literary fiction from this. No, I'm not either. Um, not enough character, which is usually what grabs you from the start in Litvik. Martin likes the muffled fairy tale quality of the story. And I can totally see that. I'm, I'm relating to that too. However, the other side of that coin is, of course, what Johnny says is washing over me a little. It's pleasant, but not very gripping. 
and Galadriel kind of competes uh, completes that sort of triangle saying there's an indulgence in the writing that I'm not enjoying S.M. Worsley who has a vested interest in this I have to say <laughs> having having won last week and possibly well being a certainly a absolutely contender for the month who knows um, I like a sense of place in nature and writing though this feels like someone has been given homework to describe their local woods so a bit of a division there amongst our um, our genii which side do you come down on, Ali? Um, I, I tend to come down for the slow, I'm afraid. I think there were an awful lot of things which, which took an awful lot of describing. And, and we didn't quite get to the number of the details. There was something about white fragrance, uh, white flowered fragrance. You know, you yes. could have just popped in jasmine or something that would actually have given much more of a or gambo what are, what's a gambo i i i, I for, absolutely not oh, you yeah, don't, i don't know either for a moment i thought no. that was sci-fi i thought we were <laughs> i thought it was sort of you know, forbidden planet stuff oh, look at that thing it's a gambo <laughs> 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 oh, we just make know. it up as we go along. You'll, yeah, you'll I'd, I'd like to know what a gambooch is, actually. Um, um, yeah, so, um, um, okay. Well, all right, let me, let me take the other side of the coin, the other side of the argument. Uh, there's a wistful quality to it, uh, great narration, and I could listen to it uh, in bed. Be very happy. It's the sort of thing I would listen to for about 15 minutes before I would go to sleep. Fall asleep. Yeah. yeah, and I think it would put you to sleep. I think, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't dislike well, it. The blurb actually. <laughs> the, the blurb made me feel it was either children's or humour, because, you know, this business mm. about painting the moon pink, you think, really? Um, so well, it, Elon know, Musk it, is going to do that in any case, isn't he? <laughs> Bastard. So. Leave our, say, hands off our moon, Elon! <laughs> bugger um, do yeah. I did wonder I mean if it if it had been written in the first person it could have been a good way of bringing it in you know mm. and, and and actually then get rid of all of that telling well a lot of the telling because there just was well it was it was you know all of it practically um, yeah. so I think that could have been a way of, of bringing readers in a bit a bit more a bit tighter because I didn't feel like I was brought in there's something nice here that I'm I, I it, maybe it's not fully expressed yet but there is an interesting sentiment it's 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 you know there's a bit of um it's a codochrome sort of book i don't nobody under 50 knows what i'm talking about it's a codochrome moment it's sort of it's kind of wistful it's seeing the past through yes. a lovely yes. rose tinted you know it's 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 a it's a sort of maybe straight to netflix movie starring tom hanks and he's kind of you know just sort of going through the moves but it's still something you you kind of watch it's got a nice it almost a feel good feel to it uh, there's something there i think uh let's have a look at katie's just said something on youtube pine needle like a a pine needle like a small bird treading air i like that yes i like that too but as nature writing this is reading like an early draft hmm clayton knows what she's talking about just the writing lacks the shape no sense of where we might be going all right let's see what jack thinks yeah not for me i'm afraid uh i thought it was self-indulgent you know what really struck me was all the you know all the information about how well he's done before meant that he has the right to put down on the page what he feels in that moment and we should read it and just appreciate the greatness and i'm afraid it takes a bit more work than that and this this wasn't the work i don't think this is the product of serious editing going back over it what am i trying to say how am i saying mm. it what's mm. the point of this how are people going to react to this it, and somebody in the genius room i think said indulgence and self-indulgence is wow. what i think is there wow. I, I, wow 
you know, I, I know that doesn't sound great. No, it but, sounds awful. You know, <sighs> <laughs> sorry, but you know, I don't know. People don't have to listen to me, but that would be my response to it. When the blurb was read, I thought it was going to be Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, let's get up there and paint the moon, and we're going yeah. to borrow one of NASA's rockets to do yeah. it. And we're going to, and that could be great. That could be really yeah. funny. And yeah. you can put all kinds of stuff in there, you know? Yeah. But it just didn't do that for me. And, you know, the title of literary fiction, you know, is it going to tell us something about humanity? About the you know the struggle for life and death at the moment, no, yeah, you know? yeah. Tell us about the shades of the blossoms on the tree as they walk through the woods, you know. Yeah, sorry. Well, I'd like to say you're wrong, but I can't. Um, I think you are right, and the genius room has gone off on a big uh, wool gathering expedition at the moment um initially they thought it was gumbo which is not <laughs> uh, but we have established a definition uh that it's a partially transparent deep saffron to mustard yellow sort of plant thing fine thank you very much i've learned a bit thing is jeff right so um let me just give you a little bit uh, here we go yeah i think this is me yes um thing is literary fiction I, I my, my standard advice is always to avoid that that particular tag, because what you're saying to a lot of people in the trade is this book's only going to sell a few dozen copies. Let other people say that about your work if they want to as praise. That's very nice, but it would be nice to feel that it had a slightly more rooted sort of um, market other than well literary fiction on people who buy literary fiction are going to buy this i could see you take it in several different ways actually it has been suggested it would be a nice book for children it has been also suggested by me it might be a rather nice sort of humorous book actually i can see that working quite well and just just uh, feel good fiction what's wrong with feel good fiction i don't know let's see uh, what the genius room is saying um jack's not a fan no he's not um I liked reading it, says Vagabond, our narrator, uh, but I felt there were too many details we didn't need to know. And that's kind of crucial at the, in, the first, um, in the first 700 pages. My goodness me. Shall we just squeeze one more submission and then, and then talk to Jack? I think we ought to. Let's do it. Here we go. And it's submission number four of the day. Looking forward to this one. Hey, it's from Nathan. He's there. He's live on YouTube right now. He's in the house. Thank you, Nathan. We shall try and do a good job for you. There's a QR code. I think it's going to go to Nathan's website. Either that or go to a rather fabulous um, video that Nathan's done for his, his book. Always interesting to do that. Nathan is giving us The Rise of Arik. It's military science fiction. Right. Let me read you Nathan's blurb. Rise of Arik is the tale of a young military officer with a distant wife, a disloyal brother, and a secret army of clones sworn to defend women's rule. War forces Arik to question his hatred for his wife, his disdain for his brother, and his commitment to keeping the clones a secret. He learns that the fate of the world depends on his ability to save those closest to him, even if it means endangering women's rule. Hmm, taking all that in, yeah. Let me tell you about Nathan. Nathan's an editor and defence consultant um, who speaks four languages. 
As a scholar of defense affairs, he taught military operations and strategy uh, to military officers for 13 years, and he has lived overseas for 18 years, in addition to his academic publications, including a book about military learning. I hope that's not an oxymoron. <laughs> he has published short stories at Small Wars Journal. I can look at that twice. At Small Wars Journal. Is there such a thing? There's a journal devoted to small wars. That's amazing. That's straight out of dystopia, isn't it? Small Wars Journal. Amazing. And AHF Magazine. I don't know what that is, but I do know that you're going to get a rollicking good reading here from Kay. Rise of Arik by Nathan W. Toronto. Read by Kay. One. Day of Decision. Boys are betrothed before birth into the family of young girls to ensure the wife is always older and wiser. If a woman is to bear twin boys, the girl who is betrothed will choose between them on the twins' kerish, Midsummer's Eve of their 18th year. Law of the Mothers, Article 4, Clause 13. Arik slowed to a trot at the crest of Medan Mountain and tried to let the dawn of a new day distract him. A lifetime preparing for this moment and he was finally ready to step onto the pages of history and take his place beside the fathers and mothers who preceded him to the eternal realms. Then his brother snuck off early this morning without explanation. Charles was up to something. Of all days, today was not a day for sneaking and deceit. Arik narrowed his eyes at the sun breaking the horizon over the placid bay of Merin. He'd expected Charles to be here. His little brother came here often to meditate or read or do whatever his melmezi learning told him to. Arik sneered in disgust to suppress the creeping fear that Charles was actually trying to tip the scales in his favour. Ridiculous. Arik knew which one of them Zarla would choose because he did his duty and she would do hers. Arik never asked to command a cattle of 10,000 he did not ask to be betrothed to the coldest young woman in all of Merin. He did not ask to be an orphan. He certainly didn't ask to have a traitor for a twin brother, a disgrace to the Jaberi family name. He shivered. Zarla might just believe enough of the men's rights foolishness to be taken in by his brother's deceit. She might even want to choose, Shal. Arik knelt and recited a prayer to the Lady of the Emerald Moon. He asked for wisdom to help Zarla see the light. He prayed to know how to expose his brother's treachery. Arik would not complain if Zarla rejected him, but he failed to understand how he wasn't the obvious choice. He would never sympathise with rebels. He would never breathe out threats against women's rule, like his weakling brother Shal. He rose and let the crisp early morning air of midsummer refresh his lungs before it lost its knife edge. The sun would soon bathe the bay in bright orange light and fill the air with warmth. Arik had to have a plan to keep Zarla from choosing his brother. In the entire history of the Eshel, a match never made less sense. Choosing Arik would give Zarla an opportunity to bind the Zaberi military line with the extensive Tameri mining clan, an alliance more powerful than anything since the war. If she chose his weakling little brother instead, the future held only fear and uncertainty. Peace would elude them. Arik leaned against a boulder and kicked at a pebble. He watched it skitter down the mountainside. 
If she chose Arik, women's rule would be safe for generations. If she chose Shal, rebel sympathisers would undermine women's rule. Arik's reason for being stood on the brink. The sun cleared the horizon and began to warm the morning. Arik squinted with suspicion at the rising light. Shal wasn't coming. Arik wouldn't be able to convince his brother in person to do the right thing, to step aside in the interest of society, of peace and security. Arik pushed away from the boulder and brushed dust and clinging pebbles from his form-fitting training uniform. He adjusted the casphene at his side and wondered what nefarious plan Shal laid for today of all days. Arik froze. A thought made him smile into the sunlight. The beginnings of a plan. Arik drew a centering breath from the calm midsummer air and focused his thoughts on the tendril link, his connection to his clones. Ayin, he cast to his aid. What news? Father, preparations for deployment almost complete, Ayin cast back. Morale is high. Arik's smile grew at the thought of his ten thousand sons. Space training is a great honour for the Ketel. Their shell can count on the Ketel of Arik to help defeat the rebels. All right, so we got great uh, feedback uh, from the genius room. Uh, I'm just going, oh, no, no, let's just see, where are we going? Writing flows nicely, says Annie. Could be interesting if approached from the right angle. And he goes on, um, military matriarchy. Very interesting. S.M. Worsley says, Ha! Men always think they can endanger women's rule. Not on Mersey's side, they can't. <laughs> I think Jack might have something to say about that. A um, lot of telling, says Vagabond. Just, just saying, a lot of telling. Uh, so far, I don't know what's going on. Don't know if I should be remembering all those names and details. That's echoed by Martin. Too much telling for me. Galadriel says, too much information. It's all backstory. And Emily says, gorgeous reading as always. Thank you, Ancora. And absolutely. Um, Nathan. Yes. Oh, you're a good man. Um, wonderful feedback from the genie. I hope you feel the same in two or three minutes when we've heard, first of all, from Jack. What did you think? It was smooth. Uh, I think it has uh, the seeds of something. For me... It began, it began okay. There's, there are a couple of positives. Positive is it's dealing with big questions, war and how society is structured, the role of women in society, matriarchy, patriarchy. That's great. You know, you can mix all that in. For me, the balance was wrong between the storytelling and the world building. I okay. looked about, there was three or four world building to every paragraph yeah. of storytelling, and yeah. it should be the other way around, I think. You need yeah. to draw the reader in and drip drop the world building. You know, it needs to be there, it needs to be part of the development, but it shouldn't dominate because no people don't have a reason to remember the names and the relationships until yeah. they can identify yeah. them with characters as a part of the action and so it was okay i think it was reasonably well written i just think the balance mm. is a bit out of out of whack now that's very interesting because i think everyone pretty much agreed that that was also a problem with our second submission from don pale gray dot um, that the, the, the balance was wrong there. That was also sci-fi. So maybe this is yeah. an issue with sci-fi 
writing in general that you know people say i've got this amazing world i've got to tell you all about it and they kind of forget that actually what we need to do is we need to get hooked into a bit of story and a bit of character as well possibly what did you what did you think ali um, I like the the quote at the beginning. Uh, I thought that that actually gave a bizarre rule being thrown in, gave you this sort of feeling of something strange was happening in a very strange world. Yeah. And and the fact he's cantering forward on a historic day, you know, again you had a feeling of action and something about to happen. You had yeah. uh, you felt something was going to occur, and then we were slammed with because I actually wrote them down as a bit. <laughs> it was twelve. Um, entirely weird and strange names in which you know most of them appeared to have no real reason to be there uh, oh. I suspect you could have pruned out all except about five of them um, so and by the end of it you know how it is when you read Russian novels you kind of zip the names you know because you just can't yeah. quite keep yeah, them all in your head right. I, I, I thought I was the <laughs> only one who did that <laughs> no 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 it's, um, it's something like Natasha I can deal with it but otherwise uh. it goes um, but uh, so yeah it was just all this stuff and and I understand I mean you know we had his anxieties laid out and you think fair cop that's a lot of anxieties and that's big yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. and then we repeated the anxieties yeah. and then we repeated them again and I almost felt the, the bits of colour which actually I quite liked you know the bits of sort of sniffing the morning air and how it's I don't know cut like a blade into his, his lungs or whatever yeah. I quite liked those but I had the impression they'd been lobbed in it was almost like they laid out the anxieties and suddenly thought oh my god I must root back to where we are so we then sniffed the morning air or we cantered a bit further forward and then we went back to the anxieties again okay. so uh, I, it's yeah. just the far too much telling not enough drawing in and and all those names um, and that competition that business about um, repetition actually was the same in the blurb the first bit was telling us about the estranged wife and the distant brother or whatever yeah. And then the second right. sentence told us all about, you know, that's his concern, was his estranged wife, etc. Yeah. You know, so uh, I, I just... So a bit too really much of a briefing for you, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. I want to ask you about something else as well that Katie has just contributed from YouTube Live. And she made very fair mm -hmm. point that actually she doesn't really like the protagonist. And she wants to kind of root for him. So I'm just wondering if this... Does this does this raise a bigger issue, issue of sexual politics? Is this the right book, the right time, Ali? I I don't feel anything for the character. I don't like him or dislike him. Actually, you, you know, he he seems to mistrust his brother. And you know, if I then had to describe him in any more detail, I would hmm. know that he's wearing a close-fitting uniform. Right. And he seems okay. to have, have to like him at this stage, do we? You know, you don't have to. You don't have to like him at this stage, but you do need to. You need to somehow get invested. You don't need to... A lot of protagonists are not likeable, but you get invested in them nevertheless. Yeah. It's quite interesting how that works sometimes. Uh, let's see, final comments. Brilliant advice from Jack. You've got praise from the Genius Room. Jack, uh, brilliant advice on storytelling, world building balance and reasons behind it. Yes, I totally agree. And Lex says some very interesting ideas, uh, but they're buried in so 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 much telling and world building some trimming down might be a good idea and martin says perhaps the scene featuring the two brothers with an undercurrent of tension yeah, yeah. good idea uh, hinting at but not making contact explicit might be a better way to start glad you're there is there's there is a flow to the writing but it's not grabbing me too much internalization of character without action started well says annie lost me off for a few paragraphs of backstory always a problem like the balance between backstory and um uh non-backstory <laughs> what do i mean uh what i mean actually uh, nathan is that what, what i'd be looking for here would be just one thing 
that really, really makes an offer to me that I can't refuse. And that is just, it's a trick. Most writers never learn it. Um, and it's, yeah, you know, if that's the only trick that your pony's got, then you will be a successful writer. There are ways, there are writers who can do that very effectively. They can make a proposition to the reader and they can just sit back and say, I've got you now, I've got you. Because you've got to read on, you've got to read on to find out, you know, the the result of the seed I've just planted in your in your head. To me, that's what I would be looking for here. Um, and if, if I had that here, then I think the rest of it is just going to work. It's not quite uh, there yet, and that's typically you, you do find. It, I mean, Tom Clancy does that brilliantly. You t- typically, you do find it in in you know in uh, thriller writers, uh, and just. just just do a bit of reading with that in mind. What What is it that they're doing that really makes me hooked? What is it that hooks me? And there will be something. There, will, there is a technique. There is a trick. Many writers have got it, and they're all very successful. Let's have a look. at. Um, and I do not want to install updates to Windows 10. Thank you, Microsoft. But no, not right now. <laughs> Actually, what I really would like to do is to have a word with Jack. So here we go, Jack. Um, no, we Hello. don't. Here we go. Here we go, Jack. This is um, this is coming out. Oh, it's already out under the bridge, isn't it? It's got an amazing review, actually. Let me before you say anything. I'm just going to read this review because this is one of the nicest reviews that I've, I've I've seen actually for a very very long time. It's quite it's quite emotional actually. So this is on Goodreads, and it's uh, this is about your book Under the Bridge. Um, this is about the Liverpool we don't know, says the reviewer. No idea who the reviewer is. No Beatles, just real people in a gritty city trying to live and work. The Docklands are the place that unleashed a world of long buried secrets and an immigrant history filled with characters and violence and love. A rare gl- glimpse into a world I was unfamiliar with and now want to know more about. Thanks, Jack Byrne, for this tribute. Isn't that lovely? How does that make you feel? That's not bad. I haven't seen that either. Not bad. Gosh, that's an understatement. My goodness <laughs> me. My goodness me. All right, uh, for those who don't know, tell us about um, tell us about this book, please. Okay, Under the Bridge follows the lives of two emigrants from Ireland after the Second World War to Liverpool. And they arrive to uh, the Docklands area in Liverpool, a small working class community. And through the decades between the 1950s and the early 2000s, they find different ways to integrate into UK society. So that's Mm. the kind of background. The actual story involves uh, a body being unearthed on a building site near the Mm. docks. And then a young reporter, Anne, uh, gets once she's really ambitious and she wants to try and find out more about the body and she goes on a journey it was, when was when was the body killed uh, who was it how did it end up there and that takes her through a story of gangland strikes on the docks police corruption all the things that kind of you know are part of life in those kind of communities mm. and she weaves her way through them with her partner uh, who's in a historian and so you get some of the history oh. of liverpool and why the, so you get that mix and what i loved about that review actually if you don't mind me saying yeah i on. genuinely hadn't heard it before 
but they kind of managed to capture the two things. So you have the Dockland, the grit, the corruption, the ganglands, but then you have the humanity and the yeah. love yeah. and the loss that exists in working class communities as in yeah. any other. Yeah. Um, social history mixed with murder mystery. Sounds like a winning combination exactly. to me. You came to writing, uh, not in the first fl flush of, of youth, did you? How did it happen? <laughs> Are you trying to say something? No. <laughs> yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't cheek cheek a man from speak. <laughs> Actually, there's a story behind that. When I was 16, I started to write a biography of my dad. My dad was a painter and decorator. He came across oh. from Ireland. And I got about half a page and didn't know what else to put. It was only in my 50s that this novel was produced, and I wow. think it actually finishes that project. Wow. And it took a lifetime to get there. Wow. And how did you, I mean, how did you come to grips with the whole writing process to begin with? Did you get a help from the body? Did you, what books did you read? Did you go to courses? How did you get your writing voice and confidence? Uh, it was a struggle, a real mm. struggle. Mm. I, I wrote a novel in the, when was it? I think it was the early 90s. Uh, I wrote it on a Windows 2.8. I don't know if anybody mm. remembers those. But anyway, those are the 2.8 computer yeah. Yeah. <laughs> with the floppy disks. Remember yeah, those? But I anyway, yeah. uh, I wrote it and it was a full novel, but I couldn't do anything with it. I didn't have the money. You know, then you had to photocopy things and you yeah. know, that was a week's wages yeah. just yeah, to yeah. do that for a book. Yeah. I had no connections in the publishing industry. I didn't know any agents. And so I let it lie until 20 years later and I went to university as an adult mm. and I thought buggery I'm going to start trying again and so I did wow. and so I started writing again and eventually produced how the impressive. novel which was published uh, this yeah. year how impressive and do you think it's got easier or harder for uh, northern writers generally over the past decade or so to get published it's not so much northern or southern. I mean, there's a big thing, and, you know, don't get me wrong, I think there is an imbalance in UK mm. society. But it's about working class, middle class and upper class. Let's be honest about it. You know, if you're from the north, but you're from a wealthy family, they'll support you to go to London to do an intern at a publisher, to do, you know, you can mm. do it. Uh, if you're from a working class family, it's much harder. And mm. the opportunities have to be for for. That's not to, you know, I'm, nobody's crying about it. If you want it enough, you'll fight for it and you'll do it. And, you know, the result will probably be better because of that. Mm. But the thing that worries me is how many people are turned off before they get that result. Yeah. Yeah. You know, who do yeah. have good stories to tell and yeah. could do it. But the whole thing just becomes too difficult for them. You've got a yeah. job, wife, family. You know, they don't have the luxury that's, absolutely. You know, so I that's think as a society, right. we're yeah. missing stories. I couldn't agree more. And clearly, you know, the genius stream is actually on your side too. And finally, what exactly is a wet nelly? No idea. Look, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I'm going. So I don't know the derivation, but it's a kind of, you know, phew. It's somebody with no enthusiasm, somebody with no <laughs> spark. Do you know where it comes from? Yes, I do. It's, it's, it's like a bread and butter on, pudding, then. actually. It's a bread and butter pudding. Is it really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, well, clearly, it's uh, it's died out in your your part of Liverpool. But yeah, it's it's. it's uh, I don't think it was ever very common. <laughs> uh, clearly not. No, but it sounds great though, doesn't it? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jack. That's brilliant. Now then, we have one final submission of the day, and who knows? It might be the winning one. It might not. We'll find out in a few seconds. This is Ros Morris. I'm the author of Not Quite Lost, Travels Without a Sense of Direction. My writing tip for you today is to check any facts you put in your book, because someone will know if you fudged something or got it wrong, and they will write to you about it, or they will tell your friends that you don't know a thing. So check any facts. Sounds good to me. Fifth submission comes from Ed, QR code there too. Historical thriller. Interrupted. This is Ed's blurb. 1915. A British aviator, Richard van der Waal, infiltrates enemy lines, hunting for the secret weapon that has, overnight, turned the tide of the war in Germany's favour. Van der Waal contends with enemies from both sides in louche nightclubs and opium dens and across deadly electric fences. He soon discovers that none of his allies, the overfriendly nurse, the arms dealer and the engineer, are who they say they are. Betrayed, with the Germans closing in, he has to complete the mission on his own. Tell you about Ed. Uh, this is Ed's first novel, outside fiction writing. He works as a consultant, researcher and advisor to technology companies. Uh, he writes as an analyst at GigaOM. Uh, that's a website I check out. And has co-authored a Harvard Business School case. He's travelled to 65 countries. Wow, you must be exhausted. <laughs> Presented technology to the NSA, taken the Trans-Siberian Railway, been thrown in jail in Ukraine, and recently keynoted conferences in Ethiopia and Uganda. Ed grew up in the, in the middle of England, and today he lives in San Francisco. Two of Ed's great-uncles died in World War I, one was documented as having taken part in the Christmas truce of 1914, which is well known, and if you don't know about it, search for it, because it's a very interesting uh, story of sort of humanity overcoming the worst possible instincts in human nature. Um, sounds epic to me. Sounds like we need a delivery, please, from Lex. Interrupted by Ed Semnet. Read by Lex. August 1915. The Western Front. The German pilot cocked his machine gun and banked the Fokker Eindecker to aim at the British biplane. Lieutenant Muller smiled behind his goggles and the thin film of engine oil covering his face. Even if he had disobeyed orders by drifting over the lines with the easterly wind, a victory would make amends. His approach lacked finesse but the single-winged plane was hard to fly, and all his training said, get close before you open fire. The target was veering away from him. Perhaps he should start with a quick sighting burst. He had fired the machine gun before, but the prospect of sending two men to their deaths was different. He depressed the trigger, and the plane vibrated as the Spandau spat bullets through the propeller. The BE-2C's pilot, Lieutenant Chisholm, was looking down at the trenches, perhaps 2,000 feet below, he wondered if the poor devils on the ground could see him. His observer was a new man who had insisted on bringing a shotgun as well as his camera. Much good it would do them against a forward-firing machine gun. The observer pointed down at the curve in the lines to their left. Chisholm banked and turned the plane to the new heading. As he straightened up, he noticed something moving out of the corner of his eye. He jerked his head round. Surely it couldn't be an Eindecker. 
they were still on their side of the lines. He hunted for the source of the movement. Against the bright afternoon sky, the black silhouette of a single-winged plane was swinging around to follow their turn and flying down towards them. He narrowed his eyes and grimaced as he made out the black cross on the Eindecker's tail. Mac, he shouted against the aircraft noise, reaching forward to alert the observer. The man looked round and then up to where Chisholm was pointing. Squinting past the edge of the upper wing, McLeod could see the Eindecker swooping down towards them. He dropped the camera and pulled his shotgun free. Out of Hunter's habit, he checked to make sure it was loaded, then turned in his seat to face the attacker. The rudder controls jerked against the pilot's feet, and a heartbeat later, Chisholm heard the staccato, syncopated clatter of the German machine gun. Muller could see he had hit the target's rudder. Shredded canvas was streaming behind the plane. He pulled the Eindecker's nose up, flying over the British plane and looking for his second attack. As he passed above the BE, he felt a sting in his cheek and his goggles cracked. Had the British fired at him? He pulled his plane round as fast as he could, ripping off his goggles and throwing them over the side. The wind stung his eyes, but rather that than broken glass. His turn had cost him some altitude, so he was just below the British plane, which was also making a broad turn. Even through his squint, Muller could see that the observer had a rifle or a shotgun. He regained altitude and turned so that he and his target were flying towards each other. This time he would shoot from the front and rake the whole plane as he flew by. McLeod turned in his seat grinning as he reloaded his shotgun. Chisholm nodded and signaled he would follow the German. The observer gave a thumbs up, swiveled round, and readied his weapon. Chisholm kicked at the rudder. The plane was not responding to the controls. A glance back confirmed the damage. Chisholm banked the plane to close with the German. Without the rudder, the turn was slow, and McLeod was waving. The Eindecker had swung round and was now in front of him, and he couldn't fire his shotgun through the propeller. He tried leaning out of the plane to find an angle for his shot. Muller wiped the blood trickling down the side of his face. His dueling scar might have a twin. He waited until the BE was within 100 meters and pressed the trigger. The Spandau fired just two bullets before it jammed with a metallic crunch. Whoops. Never a good sign. Um, Great opening paragraph, says S.M. Worsley. Uh, John is pointing out how completely international we are. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, of course, um, R.K., who had to go to bed earlier, that was not actually a reflection on the submission. I should point that out. She lives in New Zealand, folks. So, you know, that's like 2.30 crazy o'clock in the the morning. So that's fine. We're going to let her off this time. just want to say, SM Wesley says, best blurb of the day for me so far. Like the title, says Eva. An interesting blurb coming from Eva. Praise indeed. Um, Galadriel has rather like the blurb. Not so keen on the title, which reminds me of Girl Interrupted. I couldn't agree more than that. I don't like the title. Um, maybe it needs a new title, says Barbara. Nathan says, oh, I want to keep reading. Good. Um, and very engaging, says Barbara Fab. And Cora, really engaging. Got a lot, lot of mix of character and environment. Great stuff so far. I don't know. I don't know. The chat room, the genius room, as we call them now, they're pretty keen on this. Is it a bit too much Biggles, do you think, Jack? Jack is... He froze. He froze from. I just thought you were in deep thought for a moment there, actually pondering my, my uh, one of the uh, most shallow questions of the day. Is it a bit Biggles for you? Is this for me? Sorry, I missed that. Yeah, I was wondering. Uh, what did you think? I'm, I'm not going. I'm not okay. going to try. And, not going, not going to try no, my metaphor no. again. I <laughs> know uh, the Biggles was a bit. I don't know. <laughs> I liked it. 
I liked it. I think it's competent writing. There's something about writing that takes you in the story and doesn't keep tripping you up, reminding you that you're reading a writer. You know, yeah, it's kind exactly. of like, and this this is writing that draws you in. You know, and I enjoyed it, and it reminded me of the action dramas, Ken Follett, and the, I used to read the series when I was a kid, Sven Hassel. You know, oh the Second God. World War kind of. Oh my God! But I think really commercial. You know, they were very hardcore really books. Very hardcore books, actually. They kind of <laughs> ba- abandoned my school. We had to smuggle them in. Do you want to look at this one? Well, I think yeah. I read them all by the time I was Did twelve you? or something. Oh. But, Okay, I liked it. I enjoyed it. I think it has great potential. Uh, I think the thing that lets it down at the moment, I think they should look for a title that indicates yeah. the background in the First World War. And totally. I think that will boost its potential. But yeah. otherwise, I think it's good. Go okay, it. that's, that's fair enough. Very straightforward. Thank you very much, Jack and Ali, for the last time today. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I felt I, firstly I agree about the title to me the title didn't kind of take me anywhere so I, I, you know in some ways it's quite intriguing but again it doesn't tell me yeah. anything about what's going to happen or what's what's going on um, I felt the author could clearly see this very very well in their own head they were yeah. effectively describing something they were watching yeah. um, and therefore could describe it in competent coherent detail hmm. um, but I, I felt it lacked emotion uh, hmm. I didn't really yeah, feel good point. drawn into it it was it was more like just watching a film as it were and I, yeah. I began to slightly have that feeling you know when a golfer describes <laughs> his last round of golf in extreme detail you know and then on the fourth yes, fourth, I took a nine iron <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I slightly began you know and then the bullets did this you know um, so I began to slightly have that feeling of just being a bit over described but the male the male step- reader likes that don't they I mean, I mean the second time I mentioned Tom Clancy today but Tom Clancy is full of that kind of detail detail you're never going to use but it, you know but a male reader's kind of oh yeah that's good we we, we we kind of like knowledge like that never going to use it but we like it See, i need um, to know whether they broke a nail on the joystick when they were trying to you know. <laughs> let's not get into the social stereotypes uh press your button press your button ali i want to uh, interrogate I you about your it, Apologies. Apologies. Yeah, there we go. It's come through in a second or two. Let's see how the overall voting is going at the um, moment. Biggles sold a lot of books, says E.G. Logan. I completely agree, actually. Yes, of course. But uh, back in the day, and that was a long time ago, and uh, I'm just wondering, really, if the um, if the mood of the times is... is um, as Biggles orientated, I mean, you know, we've gone back a few decades, certainly in terms of our uh, quest and th- search for nostalgia. Are we going to go right back to the beginning of the 20th century? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's possible. Let's just look at Ali's vote there. Yeah, it's coming now. 60, 60, 80 for craft. And you think the commercial potential is quite is quite significant there. So that means, Ed, you've got an overall 64, which is nothing to be ashamed of. Um, yes, Johnny, somebody did mention golf, but it wasn't me. Um, <laughs> and Lex said, who is our narrator? So let's just listen to this. Lex says, also on the subject of, quote, read your writing out loud. So see how that goes. The phrase... Chisholm heard the staccato, syncopated clatter, my tongue is already twisting, uh, of the German machine gun gave me more trouble than anything I've read in my life. 
And I have six copies of the Necrom... Oh, I can't whatever it is. It's, it's one of those funny things. All right, that's, uh, that's good advice. Um, let's see um, how the overall show is now looking. Well, there we go. We've gone all the way from Daphne, just Daphne, right through to, well, outer space and then back again to World War One. But it does mean that our winner, actually, is the very last submission of the day. Congratulations to you. <laughs> Well done, Ed. Extremely creditable. Well done, everybody, actually, who sent their submissions in today. It's not easy to do. We know that. It's not easy to do. But you did it, and we're proud of you for doing so. However, I do have to tell you that the reigning champion this month... Why is it important? Of course it's important, because the, the winner goes straight off to a wonderful independent British publisher, Head of Zeus, uh, one of uh, enormous numbers of awards, over 100 awards, um, for serious consideration for publications. That's why it's important. Um, so no one's got close to last week's winner, S.M. Worsley, with 78. Who knows? It may happen next week. Why don't you join us and find out? I'm going all the way up. from 